The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Apart from the Christmas tree itself, this single item of vegetation dominates the British Christmas. These tiny green balls of misery and delight are the single most controversial course on any Christmas dinner table. You can even find chocolates wrapped in green foil in case you didn't want to dole them out during the holiday dinner. The flavor is well known. So too is the fact that they're vital. Yes, vital come Christmas dinner, even though two-thirds of them are eaten outside of December. The question is, how and why? Why do they force themselves into our mouths on the 25th? But first, let's follow the path of how this tiny cabbage traveled around the globe to our Christmas dinner. They're a vegetable high in vitamins and fiber, but low in calories. We're exploring the history and origins of Brussels sprouts. Welcome to Seasons Eatings. I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and this is season two of a bonus episode for the burr months of the year I like to call Seasons Eatings Side Dish. Each month leading up to December, I'm going to explore the origin and history of some of our favorite Christmas side dishes. Dishes that don't get spotlight on the holiday table, but carry a supporting role. But first, please take a moment and subscribe so you can help other Christmas lovers find the show. I would love if you could leave me a review on your podcast app of choice, and if you don't have time to leave a review, all I ask is tell a friend about the podcast. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, I would love to hear from you. For suggestions for future episodes, comments, questions, or even just to chat, you can reach me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can buy me an eggnog. Just head on over to seasonseatingspodcast.com and click on the little cup on the top of the page. Each donation helps with the running of the podcast, and is greatly appreciated. All links to the show can be found in the show notes. The general consensus of the food historians is that Brussels sprouts were first propagated in northern Europe sometime between 17th and 18th century. Ancient classical Mediterranean claims are unclear and not documented to the satisfaction of scholars, Presumably, they are based on the fact that cabbages, from which Brussels sprouts originated, were grown in this place. Brussels sprouts, members of the cabbage family that descended from the cabbage Brassica olaricea, and were named for the capital of Belgium. Brussels sprouts are immature buds shaped like tiny cabbages. Although the cabbage is native to the Mediterranean region, where it's been cultivated for some 2,500 years, Brussels sprouts were developed in Northern Europe, around the 5th century, or perhaps even later. One source claims that the plant was cultivated near Brussels in the 13th century. 
other places first recorded the description of Brussels sprouts in 1587. Still another claims they have been widely grown in Europe only since the 17th century, whereas at least one source insists they have become popular in Europe only since World War I. Of course, these claims are not necessarily contradictory. Brussels sprouts reached North America with French settlers who grew them in Louisiana, but they've been popular in the United States only during the 20th century. The Brassicaceae family includes about 350 genera, with approximately 3,200 species of pungent or acrid herbs. Of this family, two species, Brassicaceae olersia and Brassicaceae campestris, are the source of the edible crops. Vegetables in this family include cabbages, collards, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, and kohlrabi. B. campestris includes bok choy, pak choy, Chinese cabbage, Siberian kale, turnips, mustard, rape, and rutabaga and radish. Pungency from various sulfur compounds varies throughout the crops. Brussels sprouts are low in calories and high in vitamin C, folic acid, vitamin B6, vitamin K, potassium, and iron. They also include a substance called sulforaphane, a phytochemical being researched for potential anti-cancer properties. Boiling reduces the amount of sulforaphane, but steaming or stir-frying do not have the same effect. As with other vegetables containing vitamin K, which actually encourage clotting in the blood, you may want to check with your doctor before eating them if you have a prescribed blood thinning medication. Brussels sprouts mature from the bottom of a central stem upward. When harvesting, pick sprouts when green and hard, and approximately 1 to 2 inches in diameter, slightly smaller than a golf ball. Break away the leaf just below the sprout, then snap the sprout off. Leave smaller sprouts on top of the stem to further mature. A single plant will yield 50 to 100 sprouts. And you have numerous options for preparing Brussels sprouts. They can be steamed, sautéed, stir-fried, grilled, or roasted. But be careful not to overcook. Overcooking causes the sprouts to develop a strong flavor and odor that many people don't like due to the substance in the sprouts that contains sulfur. Considering preparing sprouts with various toppings such as olive oil, butter, parmesan cheese, balsamic and other vinegars, bacon, nuts, seeds, or even a little brown sugar. One of the more intriguing looking plants in a garden setting, Brussels sprouts form on a four foot stalk, setting what appear to be mini cabbage heads along the length of a spiral configuration at the base of large green leaves that break down quickly, enabling the sprouts to form. Each sprout swells to about two inches in diameter before harvesting. The top of the plant, which is never harvested, looks like an undernourished, straggling savoy cabbage. The savoy is a headed cabbage most closely related to the Brussels sprout. Planted from seed in March, under a cold frame in the north and a nursery bed in the south, then transplanted to a sunny, open section of the garden. In Belgium, the vegetable's place of origin tastes preferred young sprouts, and anything markedly over half an inch in diameter is disregarded. Americans' tastes ran to fatter sprouts. Twelve days before harvest, the plant's top is cut off. 
Harvesters cut the stem close to the bottom sprout and lay them in a shaded area until it's time to use them. These plants reserved for seed would not be topped. Although mentioned in M. Mahon's pioneering 1806 garden calendar, Brussels sprouts was quite uncommon in America in the early 19th century. Sometimes called the thousand-headed cabbage, it only became a featured specimen in experimental kitchen gardens in the 1850s, but not a common culinary plant. As late as 1894, market gardener Peter Henderson observed, this vegetable has never come into general use in this country, probably owing to its being too tender to stand the winters of the northern states. If he had lived south of the Mason-Dixon line, he would have found the vegetable more in evidence, particularly as a kitchen garden rather than a market garden crop. Georgian William N. White counseled the frost-touch sprouts taste sweeter than a regular crop. Controversial claim. He, like most Southerners, thought them an ideal accompaniment to beef. One of the earliest recipes for the sprouts in the U.S. is a salad which comes from Thomas Jefferson Murray's book, 50 Salads, from 1885. Pick over carefully a quart of sprouts. Wash well and boil rapidly for 20 minutes. If boiled slowly, they'll lose their color. Drain and plunge them into cold water. Drain again and put them into a salad bowl. Mince one-fourth a pound of boiled ham, arrange it neatly and evenly around the sprouts, and around this arrange a border of potato salad. Add a plain dressing and a teaspoon of herbs and serve. Now the first thing that pops out to me as someone who's been in the food industry for over 20 years is the cooking time. 20 minutes seems like a long time to boil vegetables, but this is in modern times. Nowadays, pans conduct heat more efficiently and everything is either electric, gas, or convection. It's all very controlled and even. Victorian cooking was not. B. Wilson, the author of Consider the Fork, explains that 19th century vegetables were probably far less overcooked than you think, especially when you take in the fact that the vegetables themselves were different. Modern seed varieties and growing methods tend to yield more tender plants. Victorian asparagus, for example, would have been stockier, and the greens and the carrots would have been tougher. Even with our modern tender vegetables, the Victorian method of boiling does not result in sogginess. The Victorian mastery of boiling was flawed. It's perfectly right at normal temperature, but you can never get water hotter than 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius. But this is not the only factor determining how fast food boils. What is important is ebullition, that is, the extent of which the boiling water bubbles. In basic terms, heat transfer in cooking is determined by the difference in temperature between the food and the source of heat. Properly boiling water moves chaotically and transfers the heat to the food several times faster than simmering water. Heat transfer also works quicker when there is more water in the pan in proportion to the food. A large pan with plenty of water and a little vegetables will cook faster than a little copper pan crammed to capacity. This brings the other point. Victorian boiled food also had another drawback, the pans themselves. Copper is a wonderful conductor of heat. The only pan more conductive is silver. But pure copper is poisonous when it comes in contact with food, especially acids. 
Copper pans were thinly lined with a neutral tin, but over time, the surface of the tin wore down, exposing the copper underneath. If you read any 18th or 19th century cookbook, and there's always going to be a mention of getting your pans frequently re-tinned. But if people back then are anything like people now, cooks must often have postponed re-tinning the pans and end up poisoning those they cook for. We'll find out how sprouts have become less unappetizing and the darling of the holidays after the break. If you're like me, you have fond memories of Christmas's past. When you settled in with your family to watch cherished Christmas classics like Rudolph, Frosty, or maybe you remember trekking to the theater to see big holiday releases like A Christmas Story, Home Alone, and my personal favorite, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I hope you'll rediscover a piece of that innocence while shopping at retrofestive.ca. While you're here, why not pick up some gifts for your loved ones? We're always posting new items, so be sure to check back often. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. From leg lamps to moose mugs, puzzles and pop culture, Retrofestive is your one-stop online shop for all your holiday gifts. Visit retrofestive.ca and be like Uncle Eddie and get something for you. Something really nice. Don't you wish the holidays would last the entire year? Well, now it can. Head on over to MyMerryChristmas.com where you can enjoy the holidays all year long. You can chat with other Christmas enthusiasts on any topic you can think of. Movies, books, cooking, decorating, anything. If it's about Christmas, it's here. Joining My Merry Christmas is completely free. But if you become a premier member, you can enjoy extra bonuses such as a yearly Christmas card exchange and Kringle Radio, Santa's exclusive Christmas radio station. For only $19.95, you can become a premier member of MyMerryChristmas.com for a full year. So head on over to MyMerryChristmas.com and start enjoying Christmas all year long. For many years, Brussels sprouts were scorned. Even Steve Bontadelli admits it, and he makes his living growing them. A lot of people in my generation hated them, he says. Their moms boiled them and made them even stinkier. Brussels sprouts need a long growing season, about 100 days. Brussels sprouts can be directly seeded about four months before the first fall frost or started indoors in flats in the early spring. When direct seeding, plant the seeds a half an inch deep. Transplants or seedings should be placed 18 inches apart in rows spread about 30 inches apart. Once the sprouts begin to form along the stem, pinch off the growing tip of the plant. This will encourage the sprouts to swell. Brussels sprouts are extremely frost tolerant. Along with collards and kale, Brussels sprouts are the last green vegetables to survive in fall gardens. Bontadelli's farm is near Santa Cruz, California, where the weather is perfect for growing this vegetable. We actually had a Brussels sprouts festival about 10 years ago, he said. And we got a lot of free press out of the deal because people couldn't believe you would have a festival for Brussels sprouts. What's worse, 
They even deserved their bad reputation. They were just very bitter, a very strong, bitter taste, Bontadelli says. But this all started to change in the 1990s. It began in the Netherlands, where Brussels sprouts have a simpler name, Schrutzes. A Dutch scientist named Hans van Duren, who worked at the seed and chemical company Novartis, the seed part is now called Sigenta, figured out what exactly which chemical compounds in Spreches made them bitter. At that point, the small handful of companies that sell Brussels sprout seeds started searching their archives, looking for older varieties that happen to have low levels of the bitter chemicals. And there are hundreds of these old varieties. The companies grew them in test plots and they did, in fact, find some that weren't as bitter. They cross-pollinated these old varieties with modern, high-yielding ones, trying to combine the best traits of old and new spriaches. And it took many years, but it worked. And the world has now changed for Steve Bontadelli, back in the farm in Santa Cruz. Lo and behold, all of a sudden, we're on cooking shows, he says. And the demand is booming. Farmers are getting four to five times more money than they did a decade ago for their crop. My dad, his jaw would just drop, Bontadelli says. He'd ask me every day, what's the price? What's the price? Because he'd been in the business his whole life. His eyes would just pop out when I'd tell him he couldn't believe it. Bontadelli says there were only about 2,500 acres in the whole country planted with Brussels sprouts just a few years ago. Today, there are 10,000 acres of Brussels sprouts in the U.S., and the fields are getting planted in Mexico, too, so people can get their Brussels sprouts year-round. Although there's evidence to suggest that sprouts have been grown in some parts of Europe since the Middle Ages, they really didn't take off in Britain until the 19th century, says food historian Samantha Bilton. Supposition here, but I imagine the Victorians liked the novelty of eating miniature cabbages. Bilton adds, as to when they become a ubiquitous part of Christmas dinner, it's hard to say. I can't find any evidence to suggest they were promoted by the Victorians as the must-have vegetable at Christmas, so I suspect it was largely down to seasonality, or was a 20th century idea boosted by grocery store marketing campaigns. Fellow food historian Angela Clutton also has an idea. Sprouts only became widely available in Britain towards the end of the 1800s, around the time that our modern ideas of Christmas feasting were being invented, just when sprouts started to be around too. So, it appears to be a case of timing. Not only is sprout season slap-bang in the middle of Christmas, but the modern roast dinner was invented around the same time that sprouts were first imported to a large scale. In the UK, supermarkets sell approximately 750 million individual Brussels sprouts at Christmas time. But if you estimate how many have eaten, it's probably only about half of that. Around 40,000 tons of Brussels sprouts are eaten every year. This is almost the weight of the Titanic and is equal to the weight of around 44,000 adult male reindeer. While I recall many Christmas dinners having to eat Brussels sprouts that were boiled within an inch of their lives, nowadays I prefer my sprouts roasted in the oven with some balsamic vinegar or shredded into a salad. Sprouts are one of the staple foods of the ketogenic diet, 
and you can find a myriad of delicious recipes to replace those ones to replace the waterlogged mini cabbages on your plate. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seasons Eating Side Dish. You can find Seasons Eatings on Stitcher, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like this episode, I would appreciate it if you could share this podcast with someone you know who loves Christmas and loves learning about our holiday foods. And if you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Google, and let me know that you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eatings sticker as a personal thank you. You can also find Seasons Eatings on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To find links to all these sites and past episodes, just go to seasonseatingspodcast.com. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can buy me an eggnog. Just head on over to seasonseatingspodcast.com and click on the cup at the top of the page. Thanks again, and drop by next time for another helping of the Seasons Eating side dish. All music used in this episode is royalty-free and is used under the Creative Commons license.